You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues of matter in business and management. Hello and welcome to this edition of the McKinsey Podcast with me, Simon London. Today, we're going to be taking the pulse of private markets, that is, the world of private equity and private debt. For the last few years, private equity companies, or general partners as they're known in the trade, have been riding on a wave of enthusiasm, as big investors, the so-called limited partners, have allocated an increasing percentage of their portfolios to private assets. But scratch the surface, and the picture is a little more complex. The flow of money into private markets has slowed somewhat in 2018. Deal activity has also slowed, a sign that general partners are finding harder to find companies to buy at prices that make financial sense. The big limited partners, meanwhile, are starting to push for special treatment in the form of joint ventures or separately managed accounts, as opposed to investing alongside their peers in so-called commingled funds. Anyhow, our guides today to the world of private markets are McKinsey partners Bryce Klempner and Matt Portner. Asking the questions is my McKinsey publishing colleague, Kate Murphy. With the scene set, it's over to Kate. So, Matt, let's start by talking about capital flows in the PE industry. What are the most important trends in terms of how much money is being raised and where? Last year was a record year for fundraising in private markets overall. $750 billion globally was raised in private markets. Private equity and private debt um, saw very healthy growth, 11 and 10 percent respectively. And I think what's most interesting is where that growth came from in private equity, really driven heavily by what we call mega funds, which would be those over $5 billion. It's worth noting that all of the growth in 2017 came from a sub-segment of a sub-segment. So if you look at uh, North American, really U.S.-based private equity mega firms raising buyout funds, those accounted, their growth accounted for all of the growth in overall private markets fundraising and then some. Uh, Absent those, the market was slightly down. As you look at at 2018, the number of funds raised thus far in the year is down about 40%, uh, while aggregate capital raised within private equity uh, is down about 30% so far. So only time will tell as to how this plays out over the remainder of the year. Um, But you do see a bit of a leveling off from the the heady growth that that characterized 2017. And so the industry has had quite an exciting run. The amount of capital that has been coming in has broken records. And and so, you know, maybe some limited partners allocating capital to the asset class have eased off the gas just a little. But we don't see that as particularly problematic. If, If you look at the operating metrics for the industry overall, such as the amount of dry powder relative to the amount of deals getting done, it's been relatively stable over time. Let's talk about investors for a, a moment since, since you raised it. What are major investors doing in terms of investing capital in, in PE? Well, I think you're seeing increased interest across the board, but there are some slight nuances by type of investor. The, you know, the endowments have been fans of the private markets for quite a long time. Um, pension funds are increasing their allocations to the asset class con- consistently. And I think sovereign wealth funds are sort of the big new 
players, not only in terms of the amount of capital they're allocating, uh, but also in the way they're playing in the asset class. So increasingly looking at co-investment and, and direct investment as a way to play and not just in commingled funds. It's also worth noting that family offices and other types of investing institutions that move closer to the retail market have been both putting more capital in the asset class and finding it overall easier to access the asset class as general partners have been seeking for a long time ways to tap that pool of capital. None of the general partners have quite figured out how to access the the retail markets per se, and the the products that have started to proliferate there and, and you know which are being pushed through the channel of traditional asset management firms tend to come with fairly high fee burdens as a result, none of these products has has uh, truly blossomed as yet, but the move is very clearly in that direction. There is clearly a desire on the part of some of the general partners to figure out ways to democratize access Mm -hmm. to the asset class, which has historically been the realm only of larger institutions. And it is something that we think will continue to evolve in coming years. In 2017, deal volume grew, but the actual number of deals completed fell for the second year in a row. Can you please explain what's going on? Yeah, I I think at the simplest level, um, there's, there's two major factors driving that. One is simply that multiples are up, right? So the, the, the multiple of EBITDA required to buy a company has continued to rise. And since those are up and since there's a finite amount of money uh, chasing deals, mathematically it's not surprising that, that as the, the price goes up, the volume will go down. Looking at it from a different perspective, I think you could argue that it's also about the fact that there is a finite supply of companies out there that can be bought by private equity at a given uh, expected return. So just to build on Bryce's point, what's interesting to note last year is that the average deal size grew from 126 million in 2016 to 157 million in 2017, which is a 25% increase. So that's interesting in and of itself. But what's really interesting about that is that two thirds of that increase is driven by multiples. Uh, so you know it's not simply a matter of finding companies with higher EBITDA or higher growth. You know it's really really multiples driven. Um, and you know to Bryce's point, mathematically that's you know led to some softening in, in deal activity. When when you dig into that a little bit more. The decrease in deal activity has actually been across quite a few sectors. The energy sector drove it significantly last year, as you might expect. But even in B2B and B2C deals as well, you saw quite a decrease. And at least for B2C, that's, that's that continued into this year. One, one other factor here that, that I would just mention, because often you get the question of, gosh, there's been a lot of capital raised. There's a lot of dry powder out there. Is that what's driving multiples up? Is it because there's so much more shadow capital? Well, yes, in part. That's what it is. But in part, it's also just the the general economy. When private equity or private equity style investors go to buy a company, they're often bidding against other financial investors, but they're also bidding against strategics. And as global stock markets have risen, those strategics are paying with stock that is just worth more. And many of them just have massive cash hoards as well. And so it's, it's the combination of these factors that's pushing multiples up 
and increasing competition for these deals. So, Matt, in a previous interview, you noted that there's a lot of hand-wringing in the industry about dry powder. Uh, last year, it reached a record of $1.8 trillion, according to McKinsey. Explain the term dry powder, and what's the hand-wringing about? Dry powder, in its simplest uh, definition, is capital that has been committed but not called. Uh, and so it is you know, capital on hand that managers have not yet invested. You know, I think the hand-wringing is because in absolute terms, as you, note, as you noted, that number has increased dramatically over the last few years. And while we don't want to ignore it completely, I think what our point is is you can't just look at it in absolute terms. If you look at it relative to assets under management or fundraising, you know, it's actually been fairly consistent. Uh, and what, we, what we've talked about is looking at it more as inventory on hand, which is relative to deal activity. And so dry powder relative to deal activity has actually been fairly consistent over the last number of years. The one thing to be concerned about is, as we've just discussed, deal activity has started to soften in the last couple of years. And so you know, if that decrease in deal activity continues and dry powder continues to increase at the rate it is, that could be cause for concern. One, one note here is that the data is imperfect. A key attribute of private markets is yeah. that they are, in fact, private. And, and so the, the data that we have is basically data from structures that become public in some way, usually because it's a blind pool and a public institution has to report, and, and hence that, that comes out into the light. One note on dry powder is that in addition to the, the 1.7 or 1.8 trillion that's out there, that as Matt says, represents a record in absolute terms, but in relative terms has been fairly steady, is that there's an unknown additional amount of dry powder out there in two different forms of what we call shadow capital. One form is separately managed accounts that general partners have raised, but which aren't being reported publicly Mm -hmm. in any substantial way, because it's with a single institution at a time, and most of those institutions don't have public reporting requirements. The second form of dry powder is capital that limited partners, such as pensions and sovereign wealth funds, have allocated to the private equity asset class or to other private market asset classes, but which they intend to invest in a form that is not in a commingled vehicle that will become public. So for instance, when a pension says, we want to invest some of our capital directly into private equity style transactions or do it as a co-investment alongside a general partner, that's typically not getting picked up in the numbers that we, you know, that are are reported on on drag powder. To a certain extent, that's the the pointy end of the spear. It's not most investors that are allocating a lot of their capital this way, but it is increasing. And, And if you look at some of the larger investors who are leaning forward to a greater extent in allocating capital directly or independently into this asset class, it's actually over half of the capital that they have allocated to private equity at this point is, in fact, shadow capital. So, Um, Matt, just going back to what you were saying, on the one hand, you have the um, record estimate, anyway, of dry powder, and the other softening of of deal numbers. And you said combined, that could be a cause for concern. Can you just expand on that? What's what's the worry? Sure. I mean, the worry would be it starts to burn a hole in the external manager's pocket, and they start doing deals they otherwise wouldn't want to do, particularly given the valuation environment. So I think that's one concern. I think our feeling towards that is, yes, it will for some, for the sophisticated managers that continue to rely on their processes and their diligence, 
It won't, uh, and they will continue to remain disciplined. Um, but if you see deal activity you know, start to decline, uh, that could be a concern. And on this point, we, we have seen a greater degree of discipline over the last couple years than we did in the run-up to the global financial crisis. Rather than continuing to underwrite or assume increasing multiples, most of the PE managers that we've seen are assuming some degree of multiples contraction. So they're, they're actually assuming that when they sell the company, that the multiple that they're able to receive will be smaller than when they buy the company, and that they're, they're still able to find deals at that level. So there's greater discipline. So Bryce, you've noted that limited partners are increasingly turning to separately managed accounts, also known as SMAs or strategic partnerships. Uh, why is that the case, and what are the implications? In terms of what it means for the, the limited partners, to, to the, you know, the, the, the asset owners who are allocating capital, it typically means that they are getting greater discretion, greater transparency, and often paying lower fees in exchange for uh, relationships that, that are more bespoke. Um, what it means for the general partners is, is on the one hand, yes, they're, they're often receiving lower fees, um, but it's often on terms that are, that, that are, are preferable for them. Longer lockups and uh, access to uh, uh, you know, closer relationships with investors that, that they're keen to build long-term partnerships with. Sometimes, as you mentioned, Kate, the most extreme example of the trend towards separately managed accounts is the trend that you mentioned of strategic partnerships, which, which is uh, still a, a relatively rare construct that has nevertheless generated quite a bit of interest in the past few years, in, in particular among large investors who are seeking in one fell swoop to find convenient ways of increasing their, their actual ability to deploy capital in the private markets in situations where they trust they, they won't do worse than the average. It, often in these strategic partnerships, they're, they're saying, we, we want to deploy capital across asset classes. We recognize that, that in this case it may not be, you know, in all the asset classes that it goes to, it may not be in, in top decile vehicles, but we're very confident that we're not going to do worse than the average. And this, you know, we, we recognize that our asset allocation overall across asset classes is the major driver of returns. And simply enabling us to move closer to our target asset allocations has tremendous value associated with it. And for GPs, there are benefits too. I mean, Bryce alluded to some of them before, but you know, if you eliminate and reduce some of the friction of fundraising consistently for GPs by having a large strategic partnership uh, where capital is recycled back into the partnership, that is hugely beneficial to GPs. And in some instances mm -hmm. where they you know, happen to have a strategic partnership with a prominent pension fund or sovereign wealth fund, you know, that provides them, you know, what we call an anchor tenant in some of their new vehicles. Uh, and so when they're going out to fundraise for those vehicles, having a, you know, very well-respected limited partner already committed um, can be very helpful for them. Can you talk a little bit about how the PE industry is incorporating digital and analytics? Both limited partners and general partners have recognized that these technological advancements have made major disruptions on the industries that they invest in and have started asking the question, how is this going to impact our own industry? How should we be evolving our own institutions in order to take advantage of it? And so you've started to see progress everywhere from 
at the simplest level, institutions saying, how can we take elements of our own workflow and make them faster, cheaper, smarter, better, right? How can we make our diligence faster, for instance, by using optical character recognition or natural language processing to pour through the thousands of documents in a data room faster? In other examples, it's, it's revolutionizing the processes. So there's, there's uh, one general partner in Europe that has, has gained uh, a, a fair bit of attention for meaningfully shifting their, their sourcing process to be an, artifi- an artificial intelligence-driven sourcing process where they take 30 or 35 different kinds of what they call alternative data uh, and they sort of smush them together into a, into a giant database. And, and this black box then spits out companies that seem to fit the characteristics of past companies that they've had success investing in. And, and so you, you see really quite a, a spectrum of how institutions are thinking about using this. Most of them are at the very front end of saying, can we do this, should we do this, when should we do this, how will we do this? A lot of what we've talked about here is... Uh, clearly relevant regardless of, of, of where you are, you know, whether it be Europe, Asia, North America. But I just wonder, are there any uh, distinctions between regions in terms of how things are evolving or what the risks are? Uh, I'd offer two points of distinction. One is uh, w- within the developed markets uh, to paint with a very broad brush. There tends to be a difference in firm personality between the American GPs and the European ones. And it's a difference that I think stems from, uh, from, from where these firms came. The, the, the American funds tend to be founder-driven. They, they tended to be entrepreneurial startups. The European funds, more often than not, were spin-offs or spin-outs of, uh, of, of banks. And so the European ones tended to start off with uh, more of an institutional culture you know, with professional managers, they, they tended to be less concerned about the notion of succession. Uh, they, they tended to be less about one or two people that, than, than the American firms. Um, and so they've just they've faced different sorts of, of challenges um, and opportunities as they scaled. Conversely, the American ones tended to be more entrepreneurial, more centered around uh, you know, one or two or three iconic founders. And, you know, th- that was an opportunity for them insofar as it enabled them historically to make bolder moves, to scale faster, and so forth. Um, but it also provided some growing pains um, as, as that initial generation uh, yielded to, uh, y- yielded to their, their successors. A, a second dimension is the difference between how this is evolving in the developed markets and in the emerging markets. As important as institutionalization is in the developed markets, it's even more important in the emerging markets. You, you'll, you'll often hear limited partners say things along the lines of, I certainly don't want to invest in an emerging manager in an emerging market. <laughs> if, if they're going to allocate capital to, to, to developing markets, more often than not, they, they will set a fairly high bar for institutionalization. Yeah, and just to, just to build on that, I mean, to look at a couple of statistics from Asia, which has you know been a bit volatile and bumpy over the years in private equity, I think some of the signs of the increasing maturation of the or the early maturation, I would say, of Asian private equity and private markets generally is you know you saw deal volume uh, deal volume jumped in in Asia last year by ninety six percent. 
Uh, now, you know, granted, these are off smaller bases than we're talking about in the developed markets, but um, deal volume jumped significantly with some huge B2B deals, uh, and fundraising also increased by about 10% year-on-year in Asia. Uh, and, you know, some specific private markets asset classes like private debt have, have really thrived there recently, given the challenges of, of accessing the debt markets through traditional banks um, in, in some Asian countries. So I think the data is bearing out this notion of increasing institutionalization and early maturation. Historically, one way to frame it is that the, the greatest challenge that limited partners faced in developed market private equity was getting enough capital in. And the greatest challenge they faced in emerging market private markets was getting any capital out. It was, it was historically uh, quite hard to, to find firms that had a, a real track record of successful exits. That's started to shift, but I think you, you still see a bit of a bias among limited partners um, to allocating only to emerging market managers who've, who've really demonstrated an ability to exit as well as deploy capital. So thanks very much, Bryce and Matt. Let's leave it there. I really appreciate your taking the time to speak with us today. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in to this episode of the McKinsey Podcast. To find our latest insights and analyses of the private equity industry, please go to mckinsey.com. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.